Welcome to this new episode of uh, Searching for the Question Live. My name is David Orban, and as always, we are experimenting with uh, new components to make this fun, also stimulating um, and uh, hair-raising. And we are always finding something that doesn't work, but we correct it on the fly. Being able to adapt, being able to course correct, we being able to recognize the mistakes that you necessarily make as you go beyond the boundaries of uh, self-imposed limitation is today even more important than, than yesterday. And probably tomorrow it will be more important than today. We are streaming simultaneously on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, um, and uh, since yesterday on Twitch. Are there other services where you would like to follow the stream? We will be happy to add it. Uh, and I welcome your questions because this should be an interactive event. In previous episodes, we had people from Israel, Brazil, Sweden, um, Italy, uh, and the United States, of course, as well as many other nations. And it was always great to see the questions that uh, would come up. It, for the past uh, few episodes, I had the pleasure of uh, not only uh, speaking to you on my own, but to have guests that uh, uh, allow me uh, to have a conversation about uh, uh, their experiences, the topics, the projects that excite them. Uh, and uh, it is like that uh, today as well. Uh, in the meantime, you can see that, uh, yes, this works, and uh, the drosty effect uh, will suck us into infinity. And my guest uh, today is uh, Robert uh, Terzak. Uh, Robert has uh, a varied uh, experience uh, in media as a consultant about digital life and digital businesses. Uh, he wrote the book uh, Vaporized uh, that uh, won several awards and that uh, really looks at how uh, the world's leading businesses must embrace uh, a digital platform as their next step in being becoming and maintaining their, their leadership. Products and services get vaporized in a dematerialized world. Robert, welcome on the show. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so you are uh, connecting from LA, Los Angeles, California, United States. That's with right. The, I'm in my home. Like everybody, like millions of people in California, I'm in my home right now. And uh, billions uh, the world over, uh, the late, last count, if I'm not mistaken, uh, about 3 billion people are logged in their homes. What a science fiction scenario. It is just amazing. It's true. I don't think this is what we expected 2020 was going to be like when we celebrated New Year's Eve. Uh, many of us were saying, hey, um, 2019 was uh, kind of sucky. Can we have uh, 2020 a little bit better or different? And we didn't expect this to, to happen, right? That's right. Now some people are saying we'd like to fast forward to 2021. I think be careful what you wish for. That's right. Who knows? Who knows what is going to happen? Um, so... Uh, the United States, uh, since uh, today, has the dubious uh, award of being the most infected country uh, on the planet as far as statistics go, because, of course, we are talking about the people who have been tested positive uh, for coronavirus. That's what we are talking about, if somebody wouldn't know. And... Uh, and uh, I am talking from Italy, from Bergamo, which uh, uh, was and still under some counts the epicenter of this uh, pandemic. Uh, and I was very, very, um, uh, you know, I, I, I tried as much as my channels uh, go 
to alert my American friends to take this uh, seriously. Um, do you remember uh, if for you already in January or February, there was a turning point when you realized this would be something that became serious? Yes. Um, as, as you probably recall, the first reports of this virus in China happened in late December. And of course, it's the end of the year. People were preoccupied. It wasn't clear you know, exactly what it was at that time. And so there was some confusion. But let's all remember, for, for the sake of posterity, there was no doubt what this was by the middle of February, by the middle of January. And by the end of January, it was very clear that this was a highly infectious disease. Uh, the lethality wasn't well understood. It still, frankly, isn't because it's determined by so many other factors. But what we, what we knew is that this is a very infectious disease that was spreading rapidly and could cause respiratory failure. And that sounded a lot like SARS. Uh, now, I happened to be working in Asia in, about 15 years ago when the SARS outbreak happened. And that was a serious epidemic. It evolved very differently than this one, of course. Uh, but one of the reasons that um, it didn't spread wider is that the Southeast Asian countries in China responded so quickly. Um, those countries were prepared and they didn't forget the lesson and they immediately deployed all the techniques they used to contain SARS. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we've seen countries like Singapore, Hong Kong, and Taiwan uh, respond so quickly and, and have a relatively low uh, rate of infections and lethality. Unfortunately, that lesson was lost in other countries. So here in the United States, we had clear information that this was coming. And what we did was practice denial, obfuscation, uh, a certain amount of fake news. And as a result, Americans respond in a very lethargic way. We, were, we should have been more prepared. Um, so let's talk about uh, the issue of, uh, of fake news. Of course, uh, the concept of memes as uh, formulated by Richard Dawkins, uh, self-replicating ideas similar to uh, genes uh, that are at the basis of biological replication uh, is, a, is a powerful complex. And we now are in a world where we have to be very careful because uh, the, the power of our digital tools to persuade is uh, powerful even in uh, and even for those people who who want to be skeptical who are trying to prepare themselves to double check what they they hear um why do you think um the the wave of of fake news is uh, building today why why do we have this um, not only relative to the coronavirus, but uh, for many other hot topics. So as you pointed out, um, you know, the, Richard Dawkins has something to teach us here. He's the person who coined the concept of a meme, uh, which is uh, an idea, basically an idea virus, if you will. So one way to think about what's happening right now is that uh, while we're dealing with the global pandemic, there's a second virus that seems to be getting transmitted around the world. And it's uh, in some ways even more pernicious. It's the virus of fake news, of misinformation, um, bad information that people pass off or package up as good information. And um, there are a couple of factors here. First off, I feel like everybody like me who's been working on the internet and digital projects for 20 or 30 years, we owe the world an apology because um, back in the 1990s, we were very optimistic that this would increase information, thereby increase education and awareness and understanding. Um, the internet certainly seemed like it was gonna be an information appliance in your home, therefore something that you might trust. Uh, what happened instead is as uh, in the last 10 years, 3 billion more people joined the internet. There's a lot of people on the internet today that frankly are new. Uh, they, don't have, they don't share the same philosophies that the pioneers of the internet had. And uh, they don't feel obliged to scrub their information, check their sources. Uh, some people post erroneously or uh, you know, maybe a, a little bit oblivious uh, to the source of the information. And other people do it maliciously to manipulate for whatever reason. Unfortunately, on the receiving end, the experience is information overload. And so every person who's picking up information on the web suffers from a kind of cognitive overload where there's just too much incoming information. Everybody has to make a decision about how to deal with that information overload. What some people choose to do is just triage by saying, all right, I trust these few sources. I'm gonna rely on those. 
that's not a great strategy. The best strategy is to read broadly across multiple sources and use some critical thinking to evaluate the nature of that source and distinguish whether or not you can really rely on it. Uh, unfortunately, not everyone's developed that habit. Um, so as you, because you are very active online and um, um, you are also uh, eager to both receive feedback as well as share uh, what you understand about many topics. Um, on Facebook, for example, I'm always happy to read your analysis because they are uh, not um, boisterous. They are not... Uh, Um, going for, you know, a gazillion likes for likes sake, uh, but they are always very informative uh, with, with your head on the shoulder, even when uh, you have to raise a, a, a certain alarm like, like these days. So uh, how do you go about uh, collecting and synthesizing and then deciding when is the right time to stop updating your assumptions, but to go out and say, as far as I know today, this is how things stand? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I didn't expect you to be going there. So really, your question is, when do you stop assimilating in new input and decide you've got enough information to make a statement? That's a good question. Let me respond to it like this. So um, it's true that I spend a good deal of my day looking at digital media. That's what I do for a living. So of course, I'm consuming digital media. But like everyone who produces You know, I look at it with one eye as a consumer and with the other eye as a producer, right? So a producer looks at media and says, how might it make this different? Uh, what techniques were used to produce this information? What effect are they going for and so forth? So one thing we notice, you mentioned it yourself a moment ago, um, quite a lot of content on the internet is produced for the click, right? It's designed for the click. And that's the business model of the attention. We're buying and selling and auctioning attention at, you know, constantly in real time. Um, and so you can think of the internet as a giant attention marketplace and those uh those news products that are designed optimized in a way to uh, attract attention are going to get more clicks and therefore more revenue well i think we all need to develop a little bit of skeptical capability here you know we all need to look past the clickbait headline and hey man i fall for it just like everybody else does sometimes i i share stuff that's not accurate and thankfully i've got smart friends all over the world like you who point that out to me Um, but here's a couple things that I do that are a little different. When I don't know the answer, I ask the question. And I know that's the name of your program, and I respect it very much. And frankly, you've answered my question. I remember one time um, early in the month of March, I took a couple days off on the internet, and I came back, and I was like, is this going exponential? It seems to me like it's going exponential, but I don't really know. I wasn't certain. And you responded immediately. You said, by definition, anything that transmits one to three is by definition, exponential growth. And that shifted my thought process quite a lot. So you can get good feedback from people by asking a question. Um, but I think the main thing to do is before you post something sensational or outrageous or shocking, it's a really good idea to look at Snopes or some of the fact-checking sites to see if you haven't been duped. You don't really want to be a source of bad information that, builds, that destroys credibility. Um, but I would say then that also the other factor is There's too much information. So at some point you do have to plant your flag and say, okay, I'm going to go forth and publish this now. That's right. And um, uh, here we have the article on uh, Wikipedia for uh, a meme that you may want to, uh, to look at. Uh, I shared uh, on our chat uh, both uh, uh, the website robertersek.com as well as the URL Uh, to uh, the book uh, uh, Vaporized, and I welcome the, the questions from the audience. Uh, Emiliano Morgia gave us uh, Heart 888, uh, super heart. Uh, I, I can't decipher uh, all the, the, the meanings uh, of uh, pseudo-emojis uh, that uh, uh, are also platform-dependent. I wish uh, um, there were some higher degree of interoperability uh, already there have been funny uh, misunderstandings of uh, how certain emojis rendered graphically uh, under one uh, platform like ios for example versus another like android and i heard people uh, getting upset because the kind of frown that was shared was read differently at the receiving end, right? Our pictorial communications uh, are funny, 
but uh, they they require high to tolerance for these kinds of uh, of misunderstandings. Um, so the uh, opportunity we have uh, really is to to use this time we are logged at home not only to watch uh, all the uh, Netflix uh, series that uh, we have on our queue, but to assess our priorities and to look how our individual lives and, and professional outlook are impacted by what is happening today, pretty dramatically for, for many of us, yeah. uh, but how it is going to be transformed uh, tomorrow as well. What do you think about the, this, this opportunity and, and how would you recommend people uh, build the, the discipline under the psychological pressure that their circumstance uh, uh, imposes to, uh, to, to do that? Well, it's an excellent opportunity for people to take a step back and reevaluate. Um, you know, I've written about this considerable and, and considerable length um, on my on my Facebook posts um, with my friends. Uh, I think here in the United States, we're just at the very beginning of this process. We've had coronavirus here, of course, since February, and the number of deaths continues to mount. The number of cases has skyrocketed. Here in the U.S., uh, we're very close to crossing the threshold to 100,000 um, known cases, and there's probably many more unknown cases. But we're still at, very much at the beginning of this process of staying at home, the self-isolation. Uh, here, it's not even mandatory in some states. Only about 35 U.S. states have imposed a stay-at-home order. Um, we might regret that. We might wish that it was national uh, in a month or two because the virus, people are still traveling and the virus is still being transmitted. Um, whereas, you know, David, you're in Italy. You've been under lockdown for a month, and so you've you already have a good understanding of what happens to people, the psychology for people when they're stuck at home. I'm very concerned because in the United States, we get mixed messages. Even our president said some really unfortunate things uh, where he's encouraging people to consider, you know, in two weeks, this will be over. This virus will disappear. We'll be back after Easter. Uh, these are not supportable by uh, any kind of scientific evidence or uh, there's no medical reason to expect that the United States will be doing well uh, on April 12th or April 14th. I, I think that's unlikely. Uh, candidly, all the projections suggest that the rate of disease, in, infectious disease, and also the rate of death in the United States is increasing at an exponential rate, and it does not appear to be slowing down. It appears with more testing that actually uh, the number of detected cases is going up rather dramatically, rather steeply. It varies by state. It varies by the amount of testing that's done. Um, however, the death rate, well, that's inexorable, and it's true. The death rate is also increasing exponentially. Uh, it is doubling roughly every 3.5 days in the United States. Those numbers are small today. Some people dismiss this. They say, well, these aren't relatively very big numbers if you compare it to something like auto fatalities or fatalities from the flu. The people who say this do not seem to understand that it's not like a choice between the flu and COVID-19. It's both, right? We have the regular flu and also COVID-19 and also car fatality. Our systems aren't set up for three such things at one time, and we're not anticipating exponential growth. After today, after we cross the 100,000 threshold, the numbers are going to get very scary in the United States in the next two or three weeks because the function of you know, exponential growth is that it continues to double every three or four days. So we'll soon have 200,000 cases and then 400,000 cases. The math gets scary by the middle of the month. I'm very hopeful that some of the measures to stay at home will change things. But you know, let me, let me try to address the question that you raised, because it's a very good point. The question is, what steps can we take now for our mental health and to prepare, prepare ourselves for what comes next? So it's two thoughts there. First off, you know, we're right at the beginning of this. Um, Americans are getting restless, but most of us have only been home for a week or two. Uh, it's really not that long. We're likely to be here for much longer. It's going to go past mid-April, despite whatever the president says. Already here in Los Angeles and in California, we're being given guidance by local government to expect to be told to stay at home until June. Now, that's much longer than this April timeline. I think it's good to adopt a realistic perspective. Uh, the people who are too optimistic, well, they're going to be their hopes are going to be raised and then dashed again and again and again. I think it's wrong to raise false hope. Uh, Michael Michael Hirsch uh, on uh, uh, the chat asks uh, if. Uh, given that the growth is different from state to state, should it be 
uh, is it time for the U.S. to limit interstate travel? The time for that was February. Uh, that should have happened a month ago. But but can it even happen? Are you afraid? Let let me put it differently. Are you afraid that in a panic uh, uh, of self-preservation, a government that has tried to deny reality is going to then uh, go completely overboard uh, and uh, impose um, curfews and military occupation uh, in the U.S. territory? Well, you're asking me to speculate about the future and what a rather unpredictable leader might choose to do in a moment of panic. Uh, let's let me caveat all of this by saying this is highly speculative. Here's what I do know. I think what we all know. Uh, the nations that took prompt, decisive action have had to have not had to isolate people for very long. They've been able to get their economies back going after a couple of months. Right? We've seen that in South Asia. Uh, other nations did some of the right things, but they did them too late. And I'm afraid to say that's probably true of Italy, where you know the, the government made the right moves, but 10 days too late. They waited too long. Here in the U.S., we seem to be uh, torn between making the right decisions. There's plenty of smart people advising the president and other leaders. You can see that at the, at the state level, the governors are making very intelligent decisions, governors from both parties. Um, so we're, we have smart people suggesting that we take a scientific or medical approach to contain this and do whatever we can. And then there's all these other voices, you know, pro-business voices and people that are a bit more reckless that are, and denialists who are saying, come on, it's no big deal. It's not worse than the flu. Let's get back to work. The problem with that dynamic is that um, if we don't commit to a measure now, then the problem will get worse, it will persist, and the next intervention has to be more drastic, right? I don't know what the next intervention will be, but sure, if this continues and we get to a million cases, and by the way, the math suggests that's possible. We might get to a million cases in the U.S. in the month of April. I'm not trying to panic anyone. I'm not trying to scare people. That's simply math. You just have to look at the projections, and that's widely published at this point, so that shouldn't be news to anyone. My view would be we should take every, every step we can right now uh, to voluntarily stay at home. And if it's necessary for the government to force us to stay at home, I welcome that. That will help us all in the long term. Uh, and uh, a lot of people are already home, right? You are home and uh, many of my other friends in, in, the, in the U.S. Uh, are, are home. Um, some yeah, of us true, are bear in mind bear in mind we're not staying home the way you are in italy so you know it's worth pointing out that in italy if you're out on the street uh, without a valid reason you can be arrested and in fact there's a penalty of jail time and this is not the time to be going to jail in italy um and that is that's enforced by the carabinieri which is a kind of a military force right that's that's not just the local police force that's enforcing that we're nowhere near that level of compliance in the United States. So in the United States, all these measures are more or less voluntary. They are state orders. They, you, know, you could be arrested in theory. I, I don't see anyone doing that except for the very extreme case in New Rochelle and I think in Washington state. So at the moment, this is loosely enforced in the US and what we already see, mobile phone data shows that people are still traveling from state to state. People are still traveling widely outside the region. People are still congregating in groups these are very, very foolish things to do. Um, you know, there's this myth of American exceptionalism. And I think that myth is one of the things that's going to be a casualty of this crisis if it persists and gets worse in the summer. The myth of American exceptionalism says that somehow Americans are better, or the American system is better. Um, and that strangely gets warped in some people's imagination to believe that somehow our immune system is better than other people's immune system. And we can continue to defy these orders and these, natural, uh, these, these uh, national orders. Uh, we can continue to defy those and somehow we'll be immune and we'll be safe from this disease. Of course, that's all fallacy. That's incorrect. And people are going to learn that to their dismay. Uh, so these calls to defy these orders to stay at home, I think they're very misguided and we're all going to pay a price if this continues. Um, so let's talk about those who want to structure their lives so that they maximize the probability of uh, going through this uh, as as um, optimally as possible sure. uh, with as little damage to themselves to their families their communities as as possible uh, what what are you doing in order to structure your life uh, like that um, have have you taken steps uh, 
to yeah. be able and and have food yeah. for the next two three weeks uh, uh, yeah. uh, have you made a plan of of what to study or what to what new skills to uh, to to gain or or improve skills you already have yeah that's a very good question and that's actually what i really want to share with people today so the nature of my business is very dependent on international travel conferences meetings visiting clients in their offices to teach workshops or to do consulting sessions and so forth in other words the kind of business that i do is the first casualty of this of this event and i noticed that my business was shutting down in february i finished a couple of consulting projects all the new incoming projects were put on hold i had a couple of keynote speeches booked around the world uh, one by one those events shut down or postponed or canceled And so I started the effects of this on my own personal business um, quite early in February. And of course, that's the time where I started to take this matter very seriously because I saw it wasn't just going to be my business that was affected, it was going to be everyone. Um, at that point then, I started to rethink my business. Um, and I recommend that everybody start to do this. You have two, two things you must do in the next month, if, particularly if you're in the United States or another country that's just entering the stay at home period. Step one is stay out of the hospital do whatever it takes to stay out of the hospital. Uh, so don't mingle, don't shop, don't, don't shop if you can avoid it. Uh, don't have dinner parties. People keep inviting me to dinner parties. Like this is not a good idea at this time. Don't have a dinner party, stay at home, follow the rules, isolate yourself and minimize the chance that you get an infection. Uh, very quickly in the United States, we're gonna be at peak capacity in a number of cities in our hospitals, which means that the hospital is gonna change from a place that you go to get well It will become a place that uh, is in a way transmitting the disease and there'll be a higher death rate if the hospitals are overloaded. So you, you really don't want to end up in the hospital. The good news as everyone knows is that only half the people who get exposed to this uh, develop uh, a, really, a real case or a detectable case. And of those, only a small percentage end up uh, needing to go to an emergency room. So your only job in the near future, in the very near future, next four weeks, is stay out of the hospital and keep your family safe. And of course, yes, get them fed, stay clean, follow the procedures, don't let stuff come into your house, all that. But I wanna encourage people to think a little bit beyond the very near term, a little bit beyond, uh, a couple of months from now. We're going to emerge from this in a few months. The world will be very different. I don't think we're gonna go back to the world that we were in. Uh, pandemics have, a, have a way of changing things. Can, can, can you make an example? How, how is the world yeah. going to be different? Okay, so here's one example, just exactly what you and I are doing right now. Um, I spend about five hours a day on Zoom with my clients now. And I think that's true of many, many people, right? So you can imagine all these quiet houses that you pass on these empty streets. Inside, half the people are using Zoom to communicate. The other half are using services like Spotify and Netflix and Amazon Prime to stream video or to consume other kinds of content. So one thing that's happening is um, where certainly there's a growing number of people using tools for telepresence and for uh, on-demand entertainment and other digital services. You know, that number was growing quite rapidly, but suddenly we've been thrust into it, right? We've been propelled into a fully digitized future. Many companies were not planning to have people work from home. In fact, there was a kind of reaction against that in the United States. Some companies felt that it was unproductive. Well, suddenly as of the month of March, every company that wants to be viable in the United States must learn how to deal with a remote workforce and how to manage them. So suddenly we have to develop new skills and successful people will develop those skills. Looking further down the road though, you can start to see that as people adopt new habits, you know, as we get exposed to consuming things at home and getting deliveries from the grocery store or whatever adaptation you make, some of us are going to hang on to that habit. Uh, some of those are, some of those are permanent habit, uh, habit changes, which means that the economy on the other side of this crisis will not be the same economy that we were in just a month ago. And it's very important for people to realize this now and start to anticipate what that might mean for their business. I'll give you another example, David. I spent the past five years working in, in supply chain. Uh, supply chain, even the people that work in the supply chain field feel like it's kind of a boring business. It's mostly about logistics and moving things around the world. I found it fascinating because I deal with digital networks. And of course my project was digitizing the supply chain. So I was looking at it from that perspective. And I realized that there's this vast, uh, vast network of physical things being transferred just like packets on a network, except that they're containers on a ship. The analogy holds up quite well. And of course, you can imagine then digitizing and automating that. Well, for several years, there's been a movement 
uh, towards uh, reevaluating supply chains because the view is that they're very efficient, but they're very brittle. And now to our dismay, we've discovered just how brittle they are. Supply chains can break very quickly. It only takes one missing part to shut down an assembly line. And so gradually in the month of February, as China was in lockdown, one by one, some of my clients started to realize that they were missing a key component and couldn't find a replacement part for it. I guarantee you those companies are reevaluating their supply chains and what comes out on the other side of this crisis is gonna be a sweeping change to the way our supply chains are organized, which countries we're totally dependent on, how much we automate, how much is re-onshored, you know, we bring manufacturing closer to distribution and so forth. So many of the trends of the last 30 years are gonna be reversed just in that field alone. But let me point out, the supply chain is a $40 trillion enterprise globally. So this is not a small thing at the periphery. It literally will touch every consumer product and every retailer on the planet. My favorite example uh, of the absurdity of super efficient, brittle supply chains is that there are single source compounds uh, for widely used uh, pharmaceutical uh, products that are available to the US military who are as a consequence completely exposed to Chinese uh, uh, production uh, levels, uh, whether uh, being shut down for a pandemic or being shut down for a conflict, uh, it is absurd that, that there are no alternatives that create a more decentralized and more robust and resilient uh, uh, option. Uh, right. We have uh, Emiliano Morgia uh, uh, on Twitter uh, saying that uh, as a director of uh, uh, live events and live shows, he is completely rethinking uh, what em- entertainment uh, is going to be, uh, to be uh, in, in the future. Uh, and uh, uh, he is uh, also remarking, uh, which is also a question on YouTube from uh, Greg Neal, uh, that um, uh, hundreds uh, of people or thousands of people, large-scale social gatherings, are not going to be uh, possible. That's what Emiliano thinks. Greg is asking what is going to happen to festivals, sporting events, concerts. Are we going to attend them? And and I think what you said about two months maybe being enough for raising uh, for for eliminating the restrictions on our ability to socially mingle is a decision that will not be done. Uh, in uh, based on exclusively medical epidemiological uh, uh, criteria, but there will be a trade-off. Uh, it it is not going to be possible to wait until the infection a hundred percent disappears from a population. At each moment, politicians. Uh, and and uh, um, uh, um, economic leaders will um, talk to each other and say, now is the time to allow people to restart the economy because, yes, we may be healthy on the other end, but we will have shattered the world. Uh, and, and some systems are hard to restart once they are stopped. Uh, complex uh, systems may not be restartable. We will, we may find out. We will yeah. be surprised uh, that uh, that that uh, some some key people went and found other jobs, or some, as you said, okay. key components are missing, and the plants fabricating them are not restarting for months. Okay. So, so what what is the um, what is the economic uh, uh, driver of these decisions in your opinion? And, and, and how should uh, the policy be updated constantly in order to make the best possible decision? Wow, that was, uh, you covered quite a few good topics there. So let me see if I can recap them in my answer. Um, but the main point you're asking about is, you know, what are the factors and how does the government take those into account? They're really two fundamental challenges here. One is the public health crisis. How do we stop this infection? You can't really stop it, but you can slow it down, right? What we're really trying to do there is reduce the burden on the healthcare system. Um, So if you can slow down the rate of infection, 
then perhaps we can avoid having a crisis in the hospitals, right? Because that's when the fatality rate goes up high is when you have a shortage of respirators, a shortage of, a, of intensive care units and so forth. So the near-term goal there isn't to stop anything because you cannot stop this disease. We don't have natural immunity and we don't yet have a vaccine. So in the near term, it's about mitigation and suppression. Uh, those practices have to be kept in place long enough to get the desired effect, which is to flatten the curve, as they say, and prevent that rush of cases going into the emergency room. Now, against that, politicians and leaders have to weigh this very difficult decision of um, how long can we stop the economy or stop people from get aggregating at work and schools and so forth. Eventually, we have to let people get back to work. Otherwise, we're going to have a gigantic economic crisis. So those are the two problems. But what we do know is that if you go back too soon, you don't solve the healthcare problem, right? And so we saw that in the US, the United States government initially tried to just manage the stock market's expectation and kept pumping liquidity into the system and trying to reassure investors. But because they weren't dealing very candidly with the healthcare problem, the stock market didn't buy it, right? Investor sentiment went away. And so they, they tried to correct for the economic problem without dealing with the healthcare problem. I think you have to do it in the other sequence. Now I wanna address those people who do live events because this is a big concern for me as well, I share that. Um, it is not true that we're never gonna to get together that the live event business is over. That's not true. And there's no reason for us to add extra drama here. Uh, we know what's going to happen. It's very probable that over the course of years, not months, years, we will develop herd immunity to this disease. Uh, that's going to require two things. A certain number of people are going to have to get the disease and um, you know recover and thereby develop immunity. And we think that that's probable, right? All the all the research so far suggests that that's probably likely to happen. The back, the virus might mutate, and therefore it'll be more like a cold where it comes back periodically. And the second thing is that there's promising research being done right now on a vaccine. Um, but here, politicians have raised false hope. I don't think it's likely to expect that vaccine to be available anywhere at any kind of scale this year. It's probably going to be next year. So those two factors then suggest to me, David, the, the practical way to think about this, uh, the healthy mindset, is to embrace the possibility that we are going to have um, kind of surges or rebounds of, of infections um, every three or four months, it's going to come back. You know, perhaps we'll get some relief in the summer and the warm weather, but it probably will come back. Wave two will come back. That's been a factor in almost every infectious outbreak, including the 1918 pandemic. And so, um, and particularly in places like the United States where people refuse to participate in a, you know, voluntary stay at home and continue to meet and greet and gather, well, they're going to continue to get infected as well. So we'll never really be able to suppress it in the United States. So that means it will become a factor of life. But there'll be an increasing number of people who have been exposed to who survive, and they will develop some form of immunity. Um, we certainly hope that that's going to happen with people who are in the healthcare profession, because we need people who can go into the healthcare and not worry about not be concerned about getting themselves sick. We're not there yet. We don't have that yet. But that's a very important factor. So over time, what I think you're going to see is a large uh, and growing percentage of the population who are immune. Now, here's an interesting question, David. How do we let people know that we've got immunity? In the United States, that kind of information is considered very private. In Singapore, that information is public. Uh, people, the names of the people who are infected are publicized. They think it's a public safety um, aspect, it's public safety that people should be well informed. Uh, clearly, we're going to have a gigantic debate about this, but if you, if you put it in the context of something like a dating site, um, you're going to want to know if you're on a dating site, who's got immunity and who doesn't yet have immunity. I and mean, that could be a fateful decision if you, if you make the wrong call there. So at some point, we're going to find a way to communicate to people who has immunity. And, and, and there isn't yet a serum test that'll tell us if people have the antibodies, you know, if they've ex been exposed and survived. But we've already heard calls for that from the governor of New York, who I think is making some very practical suggestions. And so um, any test for antibodies that helps us distinguish who has uh, some form of immunity from those who don't, that will go a long way to bringing people back to the workforce and starting the economy again. Um, we have uh, a lot of questions uh, uh, going by fast enough that I cannot even keep them on the screen because this embeddable gadget doesn't let me scroll back. Uh, but uh, I have also another access uh, uh, where I can. 
So uh, Gio Scripcario, who uh, is uh, in Romania, uh, is asking uh, what will be, uh, in our opinion, the winning business models of the post-corona world, uh, which I think is, is an important question because there are business models that are well suited to a certain world and, and there are business models that aren't. Uh, the business model uh, uh, of uh, Facebook could thrive because the US had no regulation around uh, the uh, gathering and, and the selling of, uh, of data uh, about individuals uh, and Facebook was very capable in exploiting that lack of regulation. Uh, now, when you say that in a post-corona world, we have to be able to reliably understand whether we are a, a, a threat to each other as we meet, uh, that cannot be left to the private sector to work out, I, I would say. And, and, and uh, if, if we did, it would be a, a, an experiment in social Darwinism at, uh, at a billion uh, user scale. And maybe Facebook would be quite happy to say, no, no, we can work it out, but, but I don't know whether we should let them. So uh, there will be regulation. And of course the regulation will be wrong and we will update it and upgrade it until we get it right. And in some places will be different than other places. But the consequence of that regulation will be to design a new uh, playground, uh, a new um, uh, level on which to build the business models that are better suited. Do you have any um, reaction to that uh, uh, line of thought? Sure. I mean, this is a field of my expertise. I'm not an expert in, in infectious disease, but I am an expert in designing and developing digital services. This is what the point of my book is about. Vaporized is about replacing physical things with software. Uh, it's a simple idea when you say it that way, but when you think of its implications, it's quite complex. And I go into great depth in several different industries. I evaluated uh, you know, across industries and also education, um, how we might replace a physical product or a physical item or even a physical place with a digital service. So from my viewpoint, the companies that made that decision years ago are the ones that are thriving right now. And look at Zoom, we're using Zoom right now, right? Zoom replaces a physical meeting. It also replaces an airplane to some extent because we can connect directly face-to-face -face and share it with thousands and thousands of people. Uh, their stock's doing great. And so, you know, I've heard that Citrix did 8 billion phone calls um, in, the, in the month of March. Uh, I don't know if that figure is accurate or not, but, you know, we're starting to see these dematerialized services scale. That's true for OTT video that's streaming. That's true for music services, but it's also true for healthcare. I had a conversation with a doctor this week uh, because I have a knee problem, which is going to get fixed. And of course, they were encouraging me not to come in. I'm happy not to come in. And we did a video call. Uh, we used technology that I helped develop almost 20 years ago at Packet Video for streaming video. And so now you can replace the doctor's office or the doctor's visit uh, with a video call. So that's the first idea is replacing some physical thing with software. But the idea can be extended. We're also going to start to see people replace human beings with software. And there's all kinds of policy issues that are going to fall out from this. But you're going to see certainly in the field of uh, automation and manufacturing and supply chain, you're going to see automation and robotics come to the fore. They'll be more advanced and more accelerated because people don't want to be exposed to this kind of risk in the future. So I think on the other side of this, you'll see a lot more automation. Um, I think you're going to start to see data emerge as even more important. Now, everybody's been hearing about big data for 10 years. And in some respects, we're, we're almost bored of the topic. Um, but what we're starting to see is that the countries that actually used big data, that were able to gather data about this, and that includes China, it certainly includes Taiwan and Singapore, uh, those nations were able to respond in a more decisive way. Now let's compare that to the United States. Uh, you know, we, our biggest blunder by far was our failure to start testing and we still are trying to catch up. And eventually we will, because we have the manufacturing capability, we will eventually catch up with testing, but it will, we'll be starting very, very late. We should have started the testing process in, in February. And here we are in late March and we're still barely able to do enough tests. So we don't have enough data. 
Now, the reason I bring that up is that the healthcare industry is ripe for transformation. And I think this crisis is going to stress out the existing healthcare system, but it's also gonna cause us to start to see some of the mistakes that we made or some of the blind spots that we had. Uh, this crisis is gonna make those very obvious. Um, you know, David, just the last few years, uh, companies like Microsoft, Google, even Apple to a certain extent, uh, these companies have been developing new, new technologies and new plans for the healthcare industry. You know, so if you think about your Apple iPhone, it's gradually becoming a kind of wearable device uh, for, um, you know, for you to track your own fitness and your own health and so forth. I, last year, I had the opportunity to work with a couple of healthcare companies, and I was talking about these initiatives, and I asked them how much attention they were paying to them, and frankly, they weren't paying much attention. They didn't consider those companies direct uh, threats. To me, the pharmaceutical companies and the U.S. healthcare companies have an enormous blind spot. They've optimized for regulation, as you point out, right? They optimize their entire business for the rules that govern their industry. And what they aren't looking at is disruption by information companies. If Apple and Microsoft and Google and, and Amazon are successful in their digital health initiatives, we're going to use less of the existing healthcare system, right? The whole point of information is to supplant that physical delivery of healthcare. It's exactly the premise of my book, Vaporize. So the idea would be to intervene earlier, to give people better data sooner so they can make lifestyle choices and behavior decisions that will keep them out of the hospital. And right now, all of us get a chance to experience that firsthand, right? We're either gonna make the right decisions, start to adapt our lifestyle and do different behaviors that keep us out of the emergency room, or we're not, and some of us will get sick. I certainly hope everybody listening to this has taken it seriously enough to make that adaptation themselves in a, in a timely way. Uh, and uh, the, the points that we were making uh, uh, design a, an interesting chain uh, uh, of reasoning because uh, it, uh, it is going to be, um, per definition, uh, the case that uh, the restrictions are going to be loosened uh, uh, sooner than absolutely possible, uh, which will lead to resurgent uh, uh, infection uh, uh, centers. But hopefully by that time, our testing ability will be more granular so that we can block uh, a city and not a nation or a city block or maybe even just an apartment block uh, because we will be able to, to test uh, very broadly, very rapidly and know who are the, the infected to, to be uh, quarantined. Uh, but over the course of a few years, as you pointed out, uh, likely coming from uh, innovation in technology companies who are able to design sensors and wearables or even autonomous nodes that we just let uh, hanging around like we have today an Alexa uh, that uh, plays us uh, music. We may have a new version of something that be breathes in the air. Uh, you just uh, go there and uh, and you say something and uh, it can say, oh, too much garlic. Or it will say, <laughs> you, look, looks like you are infected. Uh, and, uh, and as this capability uh, develops, of course, it will have to be updated for variants and mutations of the coronavirus or new pathogens that uh, we will um, discover uh, uh, being in the wild and, and starting to spread. Yeah. And uh, then there will be an almost magical moment, uh, maybe 10 years from now, you and I or, or whoever uh, just uh, talking will say, do you remember people could enter a school, a shopping center, an <laughs> office building without having been tested in real time against the hundreds or thousands of pathogens that we are, they were shedding viruses and bacteria by the hundreds of millions at every step. And they did nothing about it. They didn't even think of how dangerous that was. Oh my God, the ignorance, how could that be? And, and that will be a very interesting new world that, that I see uh, emerging uh, from, from this. Hey, David, to build on what you're saying, just imagine automobile. Um, you know, as much as people are concerned about the COVID virus, um, you know, in the United States, 40,000 people a year are killed in auto fatalities. And globally, the figure is more than a million. 
and I do think it's it's quite likely that in about 50 years, people will look back and say, I can't believe there was a time where we let human beings with all their frailties and all their failings and all their lack of attention operate this machinery at high speed that could kill other people. I think we'll look back at that as a very peculiar time in history when, when humans operated um, motor vehicles. I mean, it's unthinkable from today's perspective because we're so used to it, we, we take it for granted. But the automobile has really only been with us for about 100 years. Um, and it, you know, it's probably the most important product of the 20th century, but it's also one of the products that's subject to the greatest amount of change in the next 50 years. But yeah, sure, our perspectives are gonna change on the other side of this crisis. Uh, so our show uh, has been a great uh, um, uh, pleasure for me. I, I had a lot of fun talking to you, uh, and, and, and hopefully uh, so did uh, our viewers. Uh, I can tell you that uh, uh, we had, for example, uh, Rehan Alakwala uh, from Pakistan, uh, not only uh, liking the, the show, but uh, also tagging a lot of his contacts in order for them to join and, 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 and see. Uh, and uh, we just got uh, three thumbs up uh, from Emiliano. Uh, so uh, in closing, uh, what uh, uh, message uh, of, of hope and uh, proactive action uh, you would like to, uh, to, to send to the people watching it live, but also those who will watch uh, the recording of this. Um, what can they do in order to, to feel that, yes, their options are limited by the restrictions, but in a digital world, there are doors that are always open? And, and what should they do in order to get ready uh, to uh, thrive in the new world coming? My advice, if you're at home and you're not able to go to work, my advice is to take a little bit of time each day. Perhaps, you know, when you put your kids to bed or after dinner, find some time, maybe take a walk by yourself and contemplate what are you truly good at? What are you doing on this planet? What is your point of being on this planet? For too many of us, we've been working in jobs that we don't particularly love for companies that don't treat us with respect. That's been true for millions of people. And over time, you become conditioned to believe that you are your job, but you're not your job. You're so much more. Each of us has a deep reservoir of talent, skills, and resources, and we barely tap that reservoir in our current jobs. Well, coming out of this crisis, we're going to need to dig deeper. You're going to have to dig deeper and start to find resources within you that you haven't touched or tapped in years. And my message to everybody who's listening right now is that you have everything within you now to emerge from this crisis healthy, whole, and successful. I want to repeat that. You have everything within you now. You have a deep reservoir of skills, experience, acumen, and intuition. You have everything you need now to thrive. Just stay out of the emergency room. Do whatever it takes to stay home, protect your family, and use the time now to imagine the world on the other side of this. Imagine the post-COVID economy and find out how you can use your skills in the most constructive way to rebuild your national economy. We're gonna need people who think like that to lead us and to solve the problems and to evaluate the, the failings and to build the next economy. This is a great time for self-reinvention. Thank you very much, uh, Robert. This was uh, fantastic. And I'm looking forward to continue our conversation. Welcome you back in the show. And of course, good luck uh, for the next uh, weeks uh, in uh, US, in California and LA at your home. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, David.